0: to Down Home Fear, a periodically active podcast that you probably forgot about. On this show, we explore true crime and strange happenings from the American South. My name's Hunter Keegan. I've been running this shindig on and off since 2016. Some of you may recall that over a year ago, I promised that there'd be another mini-series that I'd do about Casey Anthony. But then I went off the grid. My bad. What happened is that I started researching more on Casey Anthony, and I kind of realized that the new miniseries series I had in mind was actually kind of boring and contrived. I also watched the new interview series she did with NBC, and after viewing it, my vibe was that she's super guilty. So I scrapped it, moved on, and began focusing on a different project of mine, a mental health advocacy podcast called Bipolar Recorder. The other reason I backed off of Down Home Fear was that, as I've mentioned over the years, this podcast gets really emotionally taxing to work on given the extreme nature of the stories. But just a couple of days ago, a new extreme story piqued my interest. This episode is going to start with a story from Massachusetts. What? Massachusetts? That's not the South. But just hear me out, and I promise it will make sense why I'm covering it. In all seriousness, though, today's topic is infanticide, possibly the scariest crime imaginable. A mother killing her own child, what could be more terrible? I have three stories of mothers committing this heinous act. You may have recently seen the first one on the news. The other two stories are from Texas in the early 2000s, and they were so scary that you may remember them as well. This should go without saying, but today's topic is incredibly dark and listener discretion is advised. Let's get started. I want to begin with the story of Lindsay Clancy. There's been a recent national news story from Duxbury, Massachusetts, that has shocked and appalled millions of Americans. A couple of weeks ago, on January 24th, 2023, a 30-year-old mother of three named Lindsay Clancy asked her husband to go out and pick up food for dinner. While her husband was out of the house for just a half hour or so, she horrifically strangled her three children to death in her basement, using exercise bands as ligatures and leaving her children on the floor face down to be discovered by their father just a few minutes later. Her children were named Cora, who was 5 years old, Dawson, who was 3 years old, and Callan, who was eight months old. Cora and Dawson were pronounced dead at the hospital, and baby Callan lingered in a comatose state for a couple of days before ultimately dying from his injuries. After strangling her children, Lindsay Clancy slashed her wrists and throat and dove headfirst from the second floor of the home. Her husband, Patrick, returned home from picking up the food that Lindsay had asked him to go get. He entered the home and immediately was struck by an eerie silence. Three young children were supposed to be in the house, but there wasn't a sound. Concerned, he walked out into the backyard and found his wife with catastrophic injuries, laying in a pool of blood. Shocked, he asked her what had happened, and she told him that she had tried to kill herself. Immediately, he called 911 and tried to attend to his wife's injuries. When first responders arrived on scene, Patrick entered the house to look for his children. After a brief search, he walked downstairs to the basement and screamed, He was the first to discover his own children's bodies. Police and paramedics attempted to revive the children to no avail. Reportedly, Lindsay Clancy had been on heavy doses of 13 different psychiatric medications at various points over the course of the last few months leading up to the murders. Sources say she had voluntarily admitted herself to a psychiatric hospital in early January, just a couple of weeks before the murders. After she was discharged from inpatient treatment at the psych hospital, she was referred to an intensive outpatient program, meaning she would spend five days a week at the hospital getting counseling and then return home to stay with her family in the evenings. On January 24th, the day of the murders, Lindsay Clancy built a snowman with Cora and Dawson and even sent photos to her family of her and the children playing together. According to friends and family members, she had appeared mentally stable in the days leading up to the incident. Lindsay Clancy was known as a loving and caring mother She's college-educated, conventionally attractive, a registered nurse, and was accustomed to living an upper-middle-class lifestyle. Outwardly, everything seemed fine until just a few months ago. She even wrote caring and compassionate letters of support to her friends who were soon to have children of their own. But inwardly, she'd been struggling. Immediately after the murders, her husband actually asked the public not to cast judgment on her. He said that the 13 medications she'd been on had turned her into something of a zombie, and that she had not been mentally well for quite some time. There has already been intense speculation around the motives for this horrific crime, and you have to keep in mind that this happened just a couple of weeks ago. There are still a lot of new details and facts that we need to know about before we know how and why this atrocity occurred. It's still unclear why she committed these murders. Many armchair experts, including myself, contend that she may have been suffering from postpartum depression and or postpartum psychosis at the time of the killings. However, apparently in December of 2022, a doctor evaluated her for postpartum depression and said that she didn't show symptoms. Postpartum depression is pretty well known, but is rarely openly talked about. Some people call it the baby blues. It usually develops a couple of days after childbirth. The baby blues are fairly common and fade for most mothers after a couple of weeks. But for some, the condition can develop into chronic depression that can last for months or even years. But what's postpartum psychosis? It's much more rare than postpartum depression. And while psychosis does not automatically indicate that someone may be violent, the symptoms can still be extremely dangerous. Psychosis is a word that is widely misused. In clinical terms, it means that someone has developed a break with reality. It involves hallucinations, such as hearing voices, Delusions, for example, bizarre thoughts that your baby has been replaced by a robot. And it can also be accompanied by awful insomnia, disorientation, and urges to self-harm, among many other things. If someone realizes that they are experiencing postpartum psychosis, or friends and family members notice that someone is experiencing a psychotic episode, it's best to immediately seek psychiatric help. I think that that's actually one of the most troubling aspects of this whole story. Ostensibly, Lindsay Clancy was seeking psychiatric help. However, clearly, she did not get the level of care that she needed. It's deeply concerning that she met with so many different professionals over the months leading up to the murders, and no one recognized that she may be homicidal or in an otherwise very, very bad state of mind. Many people are now suggesting that she wasn't experiencing postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis at all. Rather, they contend that she is a premeditated, cold-blooded killer who resented her children and wanted to take them out with her. Based off of the limited information we currently have available, I disagree with this assessment. While searching the house, police discovered journals and notes that she'd kept over the years. While the journal entries indicate that something is amiss, particularly her impression that caring for the older two children was interfering with her ability to care for newborn Callan. She also wrote about her desire to love all her kids. Here's a direct quote from a journal entry she wrote on October 25th, 2022, just a few months after Callan was born. She wrote, I think I sort of resent my other children because they prevent me from treating Cal like my first baby, and I know that's not fair to them. I know that. I was feeling so depressed last evening when Cora and Dawson came home from school. I know it runs off on them, so we had a pretty rough evening. I want to feel love and connection with all of my kids. Allegedly, she also wrote about her suicidal ideation in the journals, but unfortunately, I couldn't find any direct quotes at this time, so I'm unsure of specifically what was written. Lindsay Clancy is now in a hospital in Boston, receiving treatment for her injuries. After slashing her wrists and throat, and then leaping off the second story of her house, she is now paralyzed from the waist down. She is also being evaluated by forensic psychologists. During her arraignment, which is the initial court hearing wherein defendants are explained their rights and the charges against them, and the defendant is asked if they will plead guilty or not guilty to the crimes they are charged with, she had to broadcast over Zoom from her hospital bed. Her plea was not guilty. She'll appear in court again later this spring. And look, I know I could be wrong about this, maybe she wasn't experiencing psychosis at the time of the killings, but she clearly has a long history of mental health problems, and I would be shocked if none of them had anything to do with these horrific killings. Okay, but why are we talking about a story from Massachusetts? It's almost as far from the south as you could get. Isn't this a show where we discuss Southern stories? I wanted to discuss Lindsay Clancy because many people have been comparing her story to that of Andrea Yates. So let's travel from Duxbury, Massachusetts, 2,000 miles south, to Houston, Texas. Let's rewind about 20 years, back to June 20th, 2001. A 36-year-old woman named Andrea Yates had been left alone in her house in a Houston, Texas suburb. She had five young children. The children were named Noah, who was age 7, John, who was age 5, Paul, who was age 3, Luke, who was age two, and Mary, who was just six months old. Andrea's husband, named Rusty Yates, was an engineer who worked at NASA. Rusty was devoutly Christian and maintained that mental illness was a myth, allegedly even making a statement at one time that all it takes to cure depression is a, quote, swift kick in the pants. He and Andrea said that they wanted to have as many children as God would allow. Earlier in her adulthood, and similar to Lindsay Clancy, Andrea had worked as a registered nurse. She was a nurse from about 1986 to 1994. The thing was, she lived with very serious mental health problems. She suffered from schizophrenia and had also been diagnosed with postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis leading up to June 20th, 2001. She had a history of multiple suicide attempts. Additionally, in May of that year, her father died of Alzheimer's disease and she experienced another mental breakdown. She stopped taking the various antidepressant and antipsychotic medications she'd been prescribed and would obsessively hold her youngest child, Mary, who, again, was just a few months old. She would refuse to put Mary down. She also stopped eating and drinking properly. She even stopped speaking. At one point, a psychiatrist described her as being in a nearly catatonic state. Psychiatrists had specifically informed Rusty not to leave Andrea alone with the children. However, in the previous weeks, Rusty had been intentionally leaving her alone in the house with the kids for one hour each morning and one hour each evening, ignorantly believing that this would help her learn to become more independent. Now, doctors had advised Andrea not to have more children due to her history of severe bouts of postpartum depression and especially postpartum psychosis. One of her doctors even wrote in his case notes, quote, "'Apparently patient and husband plan to have as many babies as nature will allow. This will surely guarantee future psychotic depression.'" On the evening of June 20th, 2001, Andrea, who Rusty had left with the children unattended, placed a call to 911. She said she needed an officer to come to her house, but wouldn't explain why. She then called Rusty and asked him to return home as soon as possible. When officers arrived to the house, they discovered that Andrea had drowned her five children in a bathtub. Her five kids, aged six months to seven years old, were found dead in their bedroom and also in the bathroom of the house. John, Paul, Luke, and Mary were found in their bed covered by a sheet. She had left the oldest child, Noah, floating in the bathtub. Officers who arrived on scene were reportedly in tears as they made the grim discovery. Andrea immediately confessed to the killings. As Andrea explained her actions that night, the terrifying nature of the crime only became more apparent. As if the story couldn't have been any more disturbing, Andrea explained that one by one she had drowned the children. She drowned Paul, John, and Luke first. She placed them in the bed that they shared, and then moved on to baby Mary. She left Mary floating in the bathtub where Noah, the oldest of the children, discovered the body. He asked his mother what had happened, and she attempted to grab him. Noah ran through the house trying to escape, but sadly Andrea was able to quickly catch him and drown him in the tub as well. She left Noah floating in the bathtub, but took Mary's body and placed her in the arms of John, who she had murdered and put in the bedroom just minutes before. On March 15, 2002, Andrea was sentenced to life in prison for capital murder. But then, in 2005, there was a retrial. Her lawyers discovered that during the first trial, one of the expert witnesses, a forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Park Gates, had provided faulty testimony. They appealed to the state of Texas, and after her second trial, Andrea was deemed not guilty by reason of insanity and instead of life in prison, she was committed to a state mental hospital. She has remained incarcerated ever since. Originally, she was committed to a high-security mental hospital, but in 2007, she was moved to a lower-security hospital where she could receive additional treatment. Her attorney, George Parnum, said that the facility she now resides in is not prison-like, he stated that there are no armed guards or razor wire and that she apparently doesn't cause any trouble and remains fairly solitary. Parnum has remained in close contact with Andrea Yates after her second trial. In 2016, he said they speak over the phone on a weekly basis and that she is doing much better mentally. He said she frequently expresses remorse for the killings and is still grieving the events of June 20th, 2001. She spends her days making arts and crafts that are sold anonymously to help benefit various charity organizations. It's also said that she occasionally watches old home videos of her children. Her case is reviewed annually, and if she wanted to, Andrea could try to be discharged from the state hospital. However, so far, she has never decided to pursue this option. Something I learned as I researched this story was that at one point, Andrea shared a room while she was in a hospital with another woman named Dina Schlosser. You may be wondering who was this woman, Dina Schlosser, and why was she also in a high security mental health facility? to November 22, 2004. On that night, police arrived at the home of a 35-year-old woman named Dina Schlosser. They had been contacted by a daycare center who had spoken with Dina earlier that day, and apparently the people working at the daycare center became concerned by some strange statements she was making. Her home was in Plano, Texas, a small city near the Oklahoma border. Dina had a childhood marked by serious medical problems. She had a condition known as hydrocephalus, a usually incurable neurological condition wherein abnormal fluids build up in the brain. It's usually a condition that affects older people, but in Dina's case, she was diagnosed at age 8. It's a very serious condition that can result in abnormal brain function and even death. She went through a series of major brain, heart, and abdomen surgeries until she was about 13 years old. But she recovered from the surgeries and went on to obtain a degree in psychology. Eventually, Dina got married to a man named John Schlosser. John was a devout Christian and fanatically followed a religious group called Water of Life Church. The couple tried to conceive children for years, but Dina suffered three miscarriages until successfully giving birth to two daughters. Things seemed to be looking up, but in 2002, she experienced a psychotic break in Child Protective Services, CPS, investigated her. CPS ordered that she not be left alone with her children. But John prevented her from receiving any psychiatric treatment because he felt mental illness is caused by the devil and the Water of Life Church forbade such treatment. In late 2003, Dina had a third child, Margaret, also known as Maggie. After Maggie was born, Dina experienced severe postpartum depression. She actually attempted suicide just a day after giving birth. This landed her in a psychiatric hospital for a period of time. At the hospital, psychiatrists diagnosed her with bipolar disorder with psychotic features. On the evening of November 22, 2004, When police were called to her home after a suspicious report from the daycare center where Dina had visited earlier that day, they entered the house. They found Dina calmly sitting on a chair in her living room covered in blood. They found that she had amputated both of Maggie's arms using a kitchen knife and then attempted to cut her own arms off as well. Maggie had bled to death, and Dina was immediately taken into custody. Her other two children were physically unharmed, although I cannot even begin to imagine the emotional trauma that they must have experienced as their mother brutally killed their infant sibling. While in custody, Dina sang Christian hymns to herself and also continuously murmured the phrase, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. She eventually explained that on the night before the murder, she'd told John she wanted to give Maggie to the leader of Water of Life Church. John responded by viciously beating her in front of the kids. Then, the very next morning, she had been watching the news and saw a terrible story about a young boy who had been badly mauled by a lion. She said that she interpreted the news story as a message from God that the apocalypse was imminent, and she began hearing an auditory hallucination, which she believed was the voice of God, telling her to cut off Maggie's arms, and then her own. During her trial, a psychiatrist who evaluated her after her arrest stated, quote, She felt she was basically commanded, in essence, to cut Margaret Schlosser's arms off and then her own arms off, and in some way give them to God. During the trial, the leader of Water of Life Church, a man named Doyle Davidson, testified. He spoke about the teachings of his church, which instructed followers that mental illness was caused by Satan and that only God, not psychiatric medication, Can cure mental illness. It was also revealed that while Dina had already been on psych meds for years before the murder, as her family became more closely embedded with the church, her husband John began forbidding her to take her medication. Dina was ultimately deemed not guilty by reason of insanity and was committed to a high security psychiatric hospital. That's where she met none other than Andrea Yates. They actually shared a room together at one point, and Dina later said that Andrea was, quote, almost my identical personality. I think we'll be friends forever. I believe the feeling is mutual. In 2008, Dina Schlosser was released to outpatient care. Conditions of her release were that she had to take birth control, take her antipsychotic medication as prescribed, see a therapist, and not have any unsupervised contact with children. However, in 2010, she was recommitted after she was found wandering the streets of Plano, Texas, in a disoriented state. She spent more time in a psychiatric hospital, and then she was released again and spent a period of time working at a Walmart using her maiden name. But eventually, people caught on to who she was, and she was promptly fired in 2012. Unfortunately, I can't find sources that detail what happened with Dina over the years immediately following. But in December of 2020, a psychiatrist stated that Dina's mental stability was still too poor for her to be living free. Subsequently, she was recommitted to a psychiatric facility in Texas, where she still resides today. This was so fucked up to research, I just... I, I can't even believe what happens in our society sometimes, the, the horror that can be committed by human beings, let alone against their own children, it boggles the mind. I'll admit though, I am incredibly morbidly curious to have been a fly on the wall to hear the conversations Andrea Yates and Dina Schlosser had while they were roommates, This was a messed up episode of the podcast, but I couldn't resist sharing it with you. These stories are so disturbing and captivating to me. They're genuinely like something out of a horror movie. Except, no, it's not a movie. This is real life, and these people are dying. I used the word horrific a lot throughout this episode. I really can't think of another way to describe infanticide. So, do you think that Lindsay Clancy was experiencing postpartum psychosis as well? Drop me a line on Twitter at HHKeegan. Here's something I'll share with you as well. I live with bipolar disorder with psychotic features myself, and when I realized that's the same condition that Dina Schlosser supposedly lives with, I was like, whoa, that is freaky. Bad optics for us mentally ill folk. But I assure you that people like Dina Schlosser are extreme outliers. Mental illness does not inherently make you violent, and I guarantee that I will not be killing any babies. If you're curious to learn more about serious mental illness and hear first-hand accounts of psychosis, depression, mania, and more, I recommend checking out my other podcast called Bipolar Recorder. Bipolar Recorder is a mental health advocacy podcast that I've been working on for about the last year and a half. On that show, I share my personal experiences and speak with various other individuals who also live with bipolar and related serious mental health conditions. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Down Home Fear. I love that I kept the RSS feed for this show active and that people still actually listen to it. You are all awesome. I'm not sure when the next episode will be. I'd say expect a periodic release every once in a while. As I live my life and come across more stories that I feel should be shared with people or that are of particular interest to me, I'll be sure to put them out there. My name's Hunter Keegan.